This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. We welcome you here on Father's Day. Wish all the guys again a happy Father's Day. Um, for those that may not know, my name is Dave Armstrong, a member here at Crossroads. I uh, help lead the ministry to men that we have here. In addition to that, I'm an area director with a ministry called Man in the Mirror, and, and Crossroads helps support me in that work. Some of you individually help support me, and super appreciative of that. On this Father's Day, I was thinking of a story of my life many years ago when my kids, my three kids were really young. We went on a vacation to Maine. And we loved Maine. Uh, it's a beautiful place, especially the, the coast of Maine, where the mountains meet the sea. And in one of our stops, we went to Rockland, Maine. And Rockland has this beautiful harbor. And at the entrance of the harbor is a light called Owl's Head Light. You see the picture of it there before you. Beautiful place. So walking around, I've got my three kids. Rebecca, i holding her by the right hand. She's seven years old. Jonathan was five years old. And Jonathan is holding Ben's hand. Uh, and Ben was three at the time. As a matter of fact, you guys went to school together, right, Nick? And so we're walking around, and I said, wouldn't it be fun if we go running down the hill? And I'm like, come on, guys, let's go. And we're just running down the hill, having a great time. Now, if you notice the topography of the land there, that probably wasn't one of the better ideas that I had, because there are cliffs at the end of the hill. But I'm thinking in my mind, well, surely they've got a fence, they've got a wall, they've got a railing, they've got a walkway. We're good. And we're bounding our way down, and somewhere along the line, I begin to realize there is no fence, there is no wall, there are no gates, there are no railings, nothing. And it dawns on me. And so, you know, I just simply yell out, stop! And there's real value, you know, parents, in teaching your kids to obey you <laughs> the first time. I wasn't worried about Rebecca and John. I had them in my hand. A little worried about the three-year-old Ben. But we all stop. Now, I don't know how close I was to the edge. I didn't have that nifty tape measure. <laughs> it was close enough to scare me like crazy with three little kids. I could see over the edge, and I could see the rocky beach down below that had to be at least 60 feet. It was so close, I wasn't going to let go of their hand to say, well, let's turn around and walk back up the hill. It was, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a giant step back. And we're going to take another giant step back. And we did that about five or six times until finally I felt comfortable enough to say, all right, let's turn around, let's go back up the hill. You see, somewhere along the line as I'm bounding merrily down the hill, it dawned on me that there wasn't a fence, there wasn't a wall, there wasn't a railing. I was it. The only thing that was going to protect my kids from disaster, from running over the edge of a cliff, was me. Guys, that holds true not just 27 years ago at Owl's Head Light, but it holds true today. In many cases, the thing that stands between your kids and disaster is you. 
And so on this Father's Day, I want to call us out as men, as fathers, as grandfathers, as great-grandfathers, as fathers someday some of you may hope to be. Not to tear you down, not to to beat you up, because sometimes that happens on Father's Day in churches. I want to lift you up. I want to encourage you. I want to remind you of the holy and high calling that God has given to you as fathers. The role that you play in protecting your children. I want you to be that warrior. I want you to be that guy who's going to fight for your kids. You see, a leader protects those that are under his care. That's that's the loving thing to do. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, prayed this what we call the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And as he talks to his heavenly father about his disciples... He says, I have protected them and kept them safe. That's what leaders do. We're to lead our families. We're to lead our children, our grandchildren. And we need to be the protectors for them. Our role is vital. For you guys that were in our Thrive class a few weeks ago, we looked at this thing about authentic manhood. One of the statements that was made in that series was when men don't lead, chaos follows. And that's true in your family. When you don't lead, chaos follows. So I want us to turn our attention this morning to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, this is going to get in my way before we're done. 1 Kings chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Don't worry, we're going to pop it right up on the screen here momentarily. Oh, I have the clicker. Here I'm wondering, Steve, why aren't you pressing the button, dude? <laughs> We're going to look at 1 Kings. Anybody know what 1 Kings is about? Kings. Excellent. You are excellent Bible scholars. It's about kings. And it gives us the account of the kings of the northern and southern kingdom. It's not only about kings, it's also about prophets. Prophets who many times stood against the king, called the king out, called the nation back to God. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, towards the middle of this chapter, we're introduced to to one of the key kings in the book of 1 Kings, and that's Ahab. Matter of fact, from this point on to the the end of the book of 1 Kings, it's all about Ahab. In addition to that, we come into chapter 17 and verse 1 of 1 Kings, we're introduced to Elijah. Elijah was the prophet who stood against the king, who called out the king and called the nation back to God. It's about prophets and kings. And between the introduction of Ahab in chapter 16 and the introduction of Elijah in chapter 17 stands this one little verse. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. And you see it there. It reads like this. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. And that's all we know about this guy, Hiel. Matter of fact, the verse seems kind of out of place. If you're just reading through Kings, you're reading Ahab, and all of a sudden, boom, up pops this guy, Hiel. And it's just this one verse. We don't hear about him before. We don't hear about him afterwards. Everything we know is about, about him is right here in this one verse. And it seems out of place. But hopefully before you're done, you'll understand why it's there. It's 48 words in the English language. 
That's all we know about this guy, but it gives us a lot of information. Oh, one of the big things we realize about Hael is he's a dad. He, he has a firstborn son of Birham. He has a youngest son, and the word youngest in the original means little or insignificant. He would, in other words, we might call it, the, he's the baby of the family, Sigum. Don't know whether he had children in between. He may have. You know, well, we have, he has at least these two. He's a dad. And what we learn about him as a dad, we can learn something from the names that he gave his children. Abiram means the exalted one is my father. It's related to the word Abram, the guy in Genesis who later became Abraham. The exalted one is my father. And, and Segub, and I don't know why you'd want to name your kid Segub. It's just kind of a weird name to me. But it means exalted. So you got this Abiram, the exalted one is my father, and you've got exalted. And some would, some would surmise by that. It just tells us something about this guy, Hael, that he is just a really proud, puffed-up guy and caught up in himself. But I think rather he's just a proud dad. So he names his firstborn, and children in that culture were extremely important, and sons even more so. And he names his firstborn the exalted one. Is my, that guy who's walking around with the puffed-up chest, that's my dad. He's proud of me. You've all been dads. You know that feeling, what it's like when you have a kid? You, you, there's a certain sense of pride, of joy, that this is your child. And you see that in grand, when your grandchildren, right? You talk to me about my grandkids. Sooner or later, I'm going to pull out my phone, pull up some pictures. Let me show you. I, I think that was Hiel. He was a proud dad, and he loved his kids, and he had all the dreams and hopes and aspirations that any father would have for his children. But something went terribly wrong. I mean, the text tells us that he lost his children, his firstborn and his youngest. They died as the result of Hael's actions. It's a tragedy. Because Hael, as we'll see, didn't, was not that protector for his children. He wasn't that wall. He wasn't that fence. He wasn't that railing for his children. And it ended up in disaster. So I want us to look at this guy this morning. Now, it's a negative example of father, but I want to turn it around to something positive because it speaks to us who are dads here this morning and a reminder to us of the role that we need to play as protectors. And I've entitled the message, The Cost of a Child. And it's phraseology that comes right out of the text. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn. He set up the gates at the cost of his youngest. It's a reminder that, dads, there is a price to pay to be a father. Either we are going to pay the price, we are going to make the sacrifices, we are going to be the leaders, we are going to expend the time and readjust our priorities to fulfill our role, our God-given role as fathers, or our children will pay the price if we don't. And that's what happened with Hiel. So there are three basic takeaways, applications, if you will, that I want to make out of this passage of Scripture this morning to us as dads. The first one is really simply this. Guard your family. Guard your family. The text begins, in Ahab's time. Literally, in his days. 
in the days of Ahab. Now, Ahab ruled about 874 B.C. to about 853 B.C., 22 years. He was the eighth king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He reigned about 150 years after David. Give us something of the context there. But what kind of days were his days? What was the culture in which Hiel lived? And we just have to back up a few verses and see. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings. Notice what he says here in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and to worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. This was an evil dude. Not only did he follow in the sins of his forefather Jeroboam, he added to that by introducing the worship of foreign gods into Israel, Baal and Asherah. A couple chapters over that, chapter 21, verse 25, we read kind of an epitaph of, of Ahab's life. And this is what the writer says, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. That's something of the culture in which Hiel was living. You see, the king, in essence, was the thermostat for the kingdom. When you read through the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, as went the king, so often went the kingdom. He set the pace. He determined, in essence, the culture. And this was the culture in which Hiel lived. Hiel was a product of his time. And I think the thought of this verse tucked in here at the end of chapter 16 was something like this. This is the end result when a culture turns its back on God. This is what ultimately happens. It filters down from the leader, from the king, down to the culture itself, down to the family, down to the fathers, down to the children. And so, Dad, it reminds us that we need to be the guardians for our families, to guard them against the negative cultural influences that surround us and around us. We need to protect our children from those things. You see, it called for, in Hiel's day, in Ahab's time, it called for men who are going to be courageous men, who are going to stand for God, stand against the culture, and do what is right for their family. So that ultimately it wasn't the culture that let down Hiel's children, it was Hiel himself. He failed to be that protector and that guardian. And we just have to look around at our culture and we see something very similar, don't we? And we see a culture that is unraveling before our eyes. We are now a politically correct culture. Drives me crazy. We see in our culture an increase in godlessness 
and increasing open antagonism to Christianity, we see that perversion in our society is not only put forth as something to be accepted, but something now to be embraced and celebrated. We're in a day and an age where wrong is right, where right is now wrong, where the entertainment media around us bombards us with foul language. I mean, you watch some of the movies, and I sit there and I think, don't these writers know any other words? But they will assault us time and time again. What we see put forth, sexually explicit behavior again and again, moral degeneracy portrayed in front of our very eyes, it's, we've lost like all sense. And I find myself, as I read the news, as I see what happens all around us, as I see the attitudes of our society, I'm asking myself, have we gone crazy? Have people lost their minds? And in one sense, they have. I mean, we've lost the bearings, the sense, this reality that there's a God and he has some standards that he wants us to live by because he wants to be able to bless us. And the truth of the matter is, there just are no more moral walls anymore. They've all been torn down. I mean, there were no walls to start with at Owl's Head Light, but we had some at one time, and they've just been all knocked down, all torn out. There just doesn't seem to be any anymore. I mean, TV's not going to protect your kids. I mean, when I was growing up, I could plop down in front of the TV, there'd be a host of shows that I could watch that would have some really good messages with them. They were wholesome, decent. You have a hard time finding anything today. Hollywood's not going to protect your kids. Media, music industry, they're not going to protect your kids. Listen to some of the lyrics of some of the songs. If you could actually hear the lyrics of some of the songs, it'd curl your hair if you had any. <laughs> Social media's not going to protect your kids. The internet's not going to protect your kids. Increasingly, the public school isn't going to protect your kids. They've got an agenda. Guys, fathers, grandfathers, we're it. We need to function in that role. We need to be the protectors. We need to set some boundaries for our kids, for our families. You know, there was a study done decades ago about this thing about fences and playgrounds. And they looked and examined, and, and when there were a school playground and weren't any fences, all the kids kind of collected in the middle of the playground, all kind of bunched in together as they played. But when they put a fence around that playground, the kids spread out because they now had some boundaries. It provided not, not limitation for them. It gave them freedom. God wants to give us some boundaries in our life, and he wants us to put boundaries there for our family, not to limit them, but to give them freedom. And we need to be that for our children. So what are we to do, guys? We need to take our stand. We need to be like Joshua, who in Joshua 24, verse 15 said, you choose this day whom you are going to serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Me and my house, my family. You see, are we going to step up to our God-given role as leaders of our family, or are we going to back down? Is Christ going to be the center of our families, or are we going to allow the culture to be the center of our families? And it really begs the question, what are we allowing into our homes? 
How are you speaking into the lives of your children or your grandchildren, or maybe in some cases your great-grandchildren? How are you speaking into their lives to communicate your faith, to communicate godly standards to them? Hey, we might not single-handedly turn around a culture. Matter of fact, it's very, very unlikely. But, you know, God hasn't called us as men to do that. What he's called us first and foremost is to lead our families. We can turn around a family. We can direct a family. And that's our role. And if there are enough men who will seriously do that, we can eventually turn a culture. But it starts here, guarding your family. That's the first thing I think we see in Hiel. The second thing I want you to notice is this. Oops, went the wrong way here. The second thing we need to take a look at is this. We need to guard our walk with God. Guard your family, but secondly, guard your walk with God. Now, that might seem a little self-serving in a way. We're talking about families, and now we start talking about ourselves. What's up with that? But it's simple. We all know the expression, a chain is only as strong as what? Weakest link. A fence, a wall, is only as strong as its weakest point. You and I as men, as fathers, as grandfathers, are only as strong as our walk with God. So it behooves us to guard our walk with God if we're going to lead our families. There's a fence on the property line in our backyard that separates our property from the neighbor's property. It sits right on the property line. It's showing some age, it's showing some wear, it's starting to break down, some of the slats are falling out. Matter of fact, there have been some whole sections of the, of the fence that have just kind of fallen down, had to be put back up. And so I was talking to my neighbor the other week, and we were discussing some different stuff, and he brought up the fence. He said, is that your fence? I said, I don't think so. I thought it was your fence. <laughs> and we had that discussion. Well, I don't know. Well, yeah, I think it might be. Well, I'm not so sure. And we never really did solve the, solve the problem. We don't know whose fence it is. And the reason the fence is dilapidated and falling out, no, none of us have taken the responsibility to maintain it because we didn't think it was ours. We need to do some spiritual maintenance in our lives so that we can be that, that fence, that wall that's going to protect our kids. We all know the Great Wall of China, right? Built to keep out invaders, to keep out China's enemies. But history tells us in the first hundred years after they built that wall, it was successfully invaded three times. Not because they went over the wall or went around the wall. They simply bribed the guards at the gates. And then the enemies came pouring through. Only as strong as your weakest point. There was a lack of personal integrity in the guards and the wall of Great China, but we need to make sure that there is some spiritual integrity in our lives as men. You see, Hael, he's called in the text Hael of Bethel. Now that tells us something. Not only where he lived, where he may have grown up at, but it tells us something about what he worshipped. Because Hael was a very significant place in the nation of Israel. Bethel was that place where Jacob, when he was running from his brother Esau, spent the night. He camped out, just like some of our, our, our skies did on Friday night. Camped out and spent the night, and he had this dream. It wasn't a crazy dream. It, it, where's Andrew? 
It wasn't an Andrew dream, as he was telling us about Kim. It wasn't one of those kind of dreams. But it was a dream where there's a stairway going up to heaven, and there's angels of God ascending and descending, and at the top of it is God himself, and he's saying to Jacob, Jacob, I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to bring you back safely to this land, the promised land, the land that I promised your fathers and I'm promising you. And Jacob wakes up and says, whoa, this was more than just a dream. This was more than just that pepperoni pizza I had last night. This was something of God in this whole thing. And so he says, God is in this place. And he names it Bethel, which means house of God. So this had extreme religious significance for the nation of Israel. But it didn't always have that same significance. Because when Jeroboam becomes king of the northern kingdom, he begins to change the worship of Israel. So turn over a couple chapters, if you would, to chapter 12 of 1 Kings, and, and, and notice what we learn about Bethel there. The kingdom's been divided. Jeroboam is now king of the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom is Jerusalem, the place of worship. Jeroboam's concerned that the people of the northern kingdom are going to turn their allegiance to the southern kingdom because Jerusalem is there. And so this is what Jeroboam says after seeking advice, and this is verse 28. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on the high places, appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he made there. And on and on it goes to tell about the worship that he sets up. That's Bethel. That's, that's where Hael grew up. That's the influence that Hael was other, under. And the suggestion is that that was the worship that Hael knew. He was a Bethelite, one who worshipped at Bethel. How fascinating it is that this turn to apostasy, this walking away from the truth of God that began with Jeroboam starts with the thought of convenience. Because in chapter 12, verse 28, we read, it's too far for you to go to Jerusalem. That was the selling point of Jeroboam. That was the advertising campaign. And the people bought into it. Too much effort, too much difficulty. Do something that's easier, more convenient. And it was the start of a slide into apostasy. Today, what do we want? We want an easy faith. Don't ask too much. Don't expect too much cost. We want something that's easy, that's convenient. We want to make God more to our liking. We're not comfortable with a holy God and a just God and a righteous God. We much prefer to talk only about the fact that he's loving and kind and he's 
all of those things. But we want to make him more acceptable to us, more acceptable to the culture around us. We want to make him more into the image that we want him to be. And we see that happening in our nation. God has not called us to personal comfort. God has not called us to be politically correct. He's called us to be personally committed. He's called us to be people of Christ. He's called us men to take up our cross and follow him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. That's what we need to be as fathers, as grandfathers. So guys, how's your walk with God? How closely are you following Jesus? How consistent is that? Not just on Sunday and you show up here, but what are you doing on Monday and through the rest of the week? Can your kids see it? Pat Morley, who's the founder of the ministry that I'm involved with, Man in the Mirror, talks about the problem, the man problem in our society and the societal problem that we have. And he says the only way out is to disciple our way out of it. To make followers of Jesus who are going to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Men are going to be transformed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. And that starts with us, men. And in our homes and in our families. That's why at Crossroads, we want to connect every man, not just to the Word of God, but we also want to connect him to other men. We want to be able to connect them in a way that they've got a guy who can act as that, that fence to him, who can examine kind of a, a structural engineer. You know, they take a look and see how strong the fence is, how strong the wall is, who can be a structural engineer in our lives and look at our lives and point out the things in our life that may need to be strengthened and encourage the things that are strong. We need that. That's why we have men's groups on a Monday night and a Wednesday morning and a Saturday morning. And I'd encourage you to find a group and be in one. And if those days don't suit you, let me know what does. And if we can get a couple of guys to meet on those days, we'll do that. But quite frankly, you don't necessarily have to meet in one of those groups. Just find a guy who wants to track for Jesus and get together and hold one another accountable. Encourage one another in your walk with God. Guard your walk with God. It's so important if we're going to lead our families. Suppose that day when I'm running down that hill with my kids, suppose I had tripped. Suppose I had fallen and let go of their little hands. What would have happened? I don't know. They might have run off the edge. It's important that we stand firm, stand strong, that we guard our walk with God. As I was putting this together, uh, one of the old hymns was running through my mind. Am I a soldier of the cross? Anybody remember that, that old hymn? And, and one of the lines is, Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me unto God? And it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no, it's not. It's not. 
We need to guard our walk with God. And then this final thing about Hael I want you to notice here is that we need to guard the word of God. We need to guard the word of God. Guard our families, guard our walk with God, guard the word of God, because if we're going to guard our families, then we need to guard our walk with God. And if we're going to guard our walk with God, we need to guard the word of God. Why was Ahab's time so evil? Because Ahab had rejected the word of God. Chapter 18, verse 16. Elijah confronts Ahab, and and it says this. When he saw Elijah, verse 17, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? You're the guy that's causing problems in the nation because he had said it wasn't going to rain, and he said that as the prophet of God, and it hadn't for three years. And the significance of that is this, that the Baals and the Asherah, those foreign gods that Ahab introduced, they were gods of fertility. It had not only sexual connotation, it had connotation for having crops in your land. They worshiped those gods because they wanted good crops. And God says, I'm going to show you who's really God. It's not going to rain, and you're not going to have any crops. So Ahab says, you're that troubler of Israel. But this is how Elijah says, he says, I've not made trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. You've turned your back. You've rejected the word of God and what it says, and you're bringing the trouble into your own life. And that's Hiel's time. And Hiel was influenced by that. We know that by the rest of the verse. He rebuilt Jericho. Now that seems, you know, decent enough. I mean, we're talking about remodeling, and you know, we've done a whole series, and we're remodeling a campus. What's so wrong with rebuilding Jericho? I mean, you know, Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem. But notice what it says. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, in accordance, and here's the key, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. And the writer here of 1 Kings 16, verse 34, quotes virtually word for word Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. It says, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. There's the word of God. And Hiel was either ignorant of God's word, or he was contemptuous of it and rejected it and said, I'm not going to believe that. That's 500 years ago. Why not? Let's go for it. And he paid the price. You see, Jericho was to be that sign of judgment. That was the the first city when Israelites entered into the promised land. You remember the story. They walked around those walls, and those walls fell down miraculously. And God said, you go in, and you just take everybody in that city out except for Rahab and her family. Here was a Canaanite city that represented evil and idolatry, and it was to be in ruins continually as a sign, as a warning. So that anybody who walked by there would be reminded, this is what God did. This is what happens to a people, to a society that turns its back on God. They ultimately will face judgment. And Ahab, or 
Hael wants to rebuild this city in direct violation of the word of God. See, God's word, it guards us. It guides us. It's meant to govern us. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word have I hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. If we're going to be the men of God to lead our families, we need to be men who are governed by God's word. And we're losing respect. We're losing respect as a society, as a church, for the word of God. George Barner did a survey recently. And this is what he found out in his survey. Only 30% of those who claim to be born again have a biblical worldview. Only 30%. The really bad news is that only 10% of men have a biblical worldview. But that's a whole other story. In other words, only 30% of those who claim to be born again actually look at the world through a biblical lens. They, they, only, they only 30% allow the word of God to guide their thoughts, their convictions, their beliefs, their actions. And here's some of the questions that he asked, and here's some of the answers. The Bible is God's word. It contains no errors. Only 76% of those who claim to be born again agreed with that statement. The Bible is totally accurate in all of the life principles that it teaches. Only 64% of those who claim to be born again believe that statement. Jesus lived a sinful life. This is a give-me. This is a no-brainer. Only 52% of those who claim to be born again agreed with that statement. There is absolute moral truth. It exists and it's contained in the Bible. Only 47% of those who claim to be born again agreed with that statement. Success is determined by obedience and commitment to God. Only 40% of those who claim to be born again agreed with that statement. It's not possible to earn your way into heaven. Another gimme. Only 37% of those who claim to be born again agreed with that statement. That's the church. What's happening to us? We need to guard the word of God. It's living. It's powerful. It's active. God keeps his word 500 years after Joshua pronounced that curse. It came true. And it, will, and it comes true today. God keeps his word. He cannot be mocked. So, man, how do we guard God's word? Well, we need to give it the respect that it deserves. We need to grab hold of the truth that this really is the Word of God. We need to read it. Uh, man, I work with them all the time. I work with churches all the time. We men have the tremendous difficulty getting into the Word of God and reading it with any consistency. We need to get in and read that book. We need to make that a priority to do whatever we need to do to make whatever adjustments we need to make so that we're men of the book. Am I being too hard on you? 
talk to me? <laughs> Let me answer it for you. No. We need to be men who are going to meditate on that word. Who are going to let God speak to us and the Spirit of God minister to us. Who are going to yield ourselves to that book. Who are going to teach that word to our children. Here's what the book of Deuteronomy says. And Hiel should have known it. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts, your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And that wasn't meant just to be literal. It might not have been meant to be literal at all. It simply meant you let God's word guide you in every single thing you do. What you think, what you do, what you say, what goes on in your home, what goes on in your city. Guard the word of God. That's our role. That's our responsibility as men. Imagine at one point I wore glasses. I was pretty severely nearsighted until about a year ago. Suppose on that day 27 years ago, I, somehow all along the line, my glasses had fallen off. And I'm bouncing down that hill towards that cliff, and I can't see where I am going. I probably would have just kept right on over the cliff. The Word of God is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It illuminates the way that I ought to go. It shows me with clarity, God's way, so that I can order my life, my walk, and I can lead my family. Guys, that's our calling. That is a high and a noble calling. Men, I want to encourage you, dads, granddads, great-granddads, dads-to-be, embrace the calling of God. Be that leader. Be that protector for your family. Don't run away from it. Pay the price. Make the sacrifices. Set the priorities. Leave a godly legacy for your kids and your grandkids. Just two thoughts before we close. Fences can be climbed. We can establish walls, fences for our kids, and the reality is that they can be climbed over. Some of you may have kids who have wandered from the faith. Teenage kids, adult kids, breaks your heart. And the temptation is to blame yourself. And the reality is it may not be your fault at all. You may have set the standards. You may have set up those fences and those walls for your kids. You may have guarded them, guarded your walk, guarded the word of God. And they still chose to climb over the fence. That's not on you. Ultimately, it's on them. The other thing I want you to realize is this. Fences can be repaired. For there may be some of you guys sitting here thinking, you know what? When I was raising my kids, I blew it. I didn't put up the guard. I didn't guard my walk. I didn't guard the word of God in my life. And again, the temptation is to kind of beat ourselves up on that. But I just want to remind you of God's grace, God's forgiveness. There isn't a man among us who hasn't messed up in some way or another. I probably more than any of you. But there's forgiveness with God. 
What matters most, what matters most, if that's your category, is not what you did years ago. What matters most is what you do now. Because you can't go back and change anything that happened in the past. You can change now. So if you need to repair your fence, your wall, you do that. You ask God's forgiveness. You start guarding the word of God in your life and guarding your walk with God and then putting up those fences for your family and your children and your grandchildren. It may mean having to go to them and asking their forgiveness because you failed them in some way or another, but those walls and those relationships can be repaired. I've seen God do it in my own life. There is a scene in the movie The Gladiator. Russell Crowe rides his horse up to the army. They're about to engage in battle, and he wants to encourage them on, and he makes this statement. It's one of the famous lines in the movie. What we do today echoes in eternity. What we do today echoes in eternity. There is spiritual truth in that statement. What Hiel did in his day echoes down the corridors of time so that now 2,800 years later, we still have a record of it. And it will echo down into eternity. What you and I do with our kids, whether we're the leaders we're supposed to be or not, will echo in eternity. Let us be the men that God has created us to be. Let us embrace Jesus Christ. Let us rely upon the Holy Spirit to be the men that we need to be. Let us establish those boundaries for our families in our lives. Let's pray. And Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I would pray that some of the things that I've shared would, would just sink down deep into our hearts. That we would, as men, that we would guard our families against the culture around us. That we would guard our walk with God. That we would guard the word of God itself. Pray for every single man here that we would be the men that you've called us to be. May we embrace that high calling. Encourage us in that through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.